0: The story I am about to tell you is true. It's about an abduction and murder that occurred in 1989 in Lake City, Florida. I have relied heavily on police reports and public documents, and I'll speak with people familiar with the victim and certain aspects of the case. All the opinions you'll hear from people I interview, as well as my opinions, and what I feel may have occurred, are just that. It's up to you to decide who and what you find credible. In the end, facts are what matter when determining guilt or innocence, and everyone is presumed innocent until proven otherwise in a court of law. I was able to review a lot of the original investigators' handwritten notes on the Darlene Messer case, and there were some interesting bits that I learned along the way. One female who knew Darlene from Tom's bar said Darlene liked to shoot pool there. She knew about her having a problem with a neighbor trying to get into her house, and the note suggests that that had occurred, quote, a couple months ago, meaning a couple months prior to Darlene's death, which seems to back up what that neighbor Linwood told police when they questioned him, that they had stayed away from each other once the judge ordered them to, and he hadn't seen her in a few months. This friend told the investigator about an answering machine message that Darlene had gotten about a month before her murder.
1: I'll see you later tonight, darling.
0: The reference on the note says, white male, deep voice. Another note that is apparently ripped from one of those yellow standard-lined pads begins with Darlene's mother's name and a Calgary, Alberta, Canada address. It appears to be notes jotted down while speaking to her. There's a date. September 10th, 1989, which might have been the date that she arrived in Florida for her visit with Darlene. Because we know that one of her friends said that she had only just arrived, and this would be about eight days before the murder. The note says, In Lake City for about a year, in Florida for three years, likely indicating how long Darlene had been in the state. Then there's an interesting list of three items which appear to be Darlene's work history in Canada prior to living in Florida. The list reads, drove taxi, animal control officer, worked undercover narcotics for Calgary police. Now, I want to be clear, I don't have any paperwork to verify that any of these were prior employers of Darlene, but what this indicates to me is that that's where her mother believed that she worked in the past. If this is an accurate list, it might explain why Darlene had told one witness that she had been a cop in Canada. Again, I have no specific paperwork that shows that she was ever a law enforcement officer, but if she was just a street informant for police in Canada, I don't expect that I would. What I do have is this. There is a fingerprint card dated February 3rd, 1987, labeled Calgary Police Service in her file. Now, whether that's an indication that she worked for them in some capacity or she was just fingerprinted for another reason, I can't be sure. But if it's true, if she did work as an undercover narcotics agent for the Calgary police, it would be another interesting similarity to her convict husband, Charles Messer. In a news article about his case, we learn that during his trial, there was an FBI agent on the stand, and it was revealed that Charles Messer had been an FBI informant. In an article dated September 5, 1974, written by Don Bates in the Pensacola News Journal, and it was titled, Jury Returns, Guilty Verdict and Robbery. One paragraph reads, quote, Another defense witness was Wayne Manis, a special agent for the FBI, who testified that Messer had been a paid informant for the government since 1971. After telling the jury of Messer's assistance in prosecuting criminals guilty of federal offenses, Mannis admitted, under cross-examination, that in the four months prior to the Fowler murder, he had lost contact With the defendant. So it's interesting that if true, both Darlene and Charles Messer had once been law enforcement informants. Also, if it's true, it tells you something about Darlene's personality. It's no joke to work undercover. You have to be comfortable assuming a role and playing a part. Your safety depends on it. You get really used to lying, convincing people that you're something you're not in order to elicit information. I don't see Darlene as a shrinking violet, that's for sure. She wasn't afraid to tell her boss about fellow employees stealing beer and food from the Oyster Shack. She watched it go on and was even savvy enough to ask the guy stealing the stuff for a beer, twice, so she could confirm for herself that what she had seen leaving the restaurant had ended up in their trunk. That's smart. It shows some level of understanding of criminal behavior. She also wasn't afraid to file complaints about multiple men that she perceived were harassing her. Now, whether or not those accusations were factually accurate and she was being harassed, I can't be sure. It's possible in the case of George, the corrections employee, her husband Charles Messer, the convicted murderer, somehow convinced her that this guy was bothering him or her and asked her to file that complaint. I think that's at least something that we have to consider. To be fair, though, I think we also have to consider that he was bothering her because we don't have enough facts either way to make a case. The same goes for the peeping Tom. Eventually he basically said that a judge told them to stay away from each other and there was no restraining order or judgment against him that I can see and I would have expected his probation officer to know of that if it existed when she apprised the investigators of her dealings with him and his history. Then we've got all the guys at the fire department and what seems like a few possible relationships that could have caused some friction within that department and with Darlene. If you're courting that kind of friction, it would not be a shock if someone started to chafe. Were one of those men at the fire department responsible for the anonymous calls? And was that even related to her killing? It's hard to say because there was so much going on with Darlene. People she'd called the cops on, people she'd had relationships with, people that she'd lied to who didn't even know who she really was, according to the manager that we spoke with. Remember, she said that Darlene never even told them her husband was in prison. And, although that's not surprising if you think about it from the perspective of Darlene not wanting her employer to know something personal that could affect her job, but she was also carrying a weapon in her purse to work, which that same manager said was absolutely against store policy. As confirmation, I do have the property report showing that they turned over the contents of Darlene's purse, as well as a jennings 22 caliber pistol to darlene's mother 6 days after her body was found we also have some interesting information in the statement of one of the last people to see darlene one of the corrections officers who came into the store that night i've told you about the corrections officers but i want to read you his full
1: statement arrived at store on 9 1889 between 12:30 a.m. and 12:35 a.m. Was with Sergeant Clyatt and Officer Thompson. Were on hospital security detail at Lake Butler Corrections. New clerk as Miss Grant from Minnesota. She was mopping the floor near the back and said to be careful and that she was stripping the floor. Thompson got and paid for some candy bars. Matthews purchased three cookies, costing about 95 cents. Not sure how much he gave her, but believes she gave him change not sure what Sergeant Clyatt purchased. As we entered this store, two other people were already in the store, walking in aisles looking at merchandise. As we finished paying for our purchases, they got in line to pay for what they had. One was a good-looking woman, early 20s, long blonde hair, about 5'10", pounds, light-colored blouse, short sleeves, and light-colored shorts. Got the impression she was with the male. He was in early to mid-20s, about 5'10", 185-190 pounds, medium-length black hair, and was wearing blue shorts, tennis shoes, and a light-colored short-sleeved shirt. A woman came in to use the restroom. She was in her late 30s or early 40s. She appeared hard and had short brown hair and was wearing a short-sleeved brownish sack dress. She was not wearing shoes. She was just inside the door. The woman first asked if there was a restroom, and Darlene said there was one in the back room but to be careful of the floor the woman then said that's okay and left without using the restroom thompson sergeant Cliot, and i then left and went to the state van just before pulling out we noted that the other vehicle parked there was a light blue bronco or blazer about 1987 to 1989 and appeared to have black or black molding in the back the black-haired male and blonde female came out and started to get in the bronco We had noted that it had Grady County, Georgia tags. When we came out of the store, I did not see the woman that had asked to use the restroom. We had only been in the store five to ten minutes at most. I recall that the clerk had been wearing tight slacks and a polo-type shirt.
0: So in that statement, the officer says that he knew the clerk as Miss Grant from Minnesota. Grant was Darlene's parents' surname. Darlene had changed her last name to Messer all the way back when she lived in Middleburg because that's what was on her driver's license, issued in November 87, two years prior. In fact, Messer was the surname on the police report about the stolen beer when she worked at the Jiffy store in Middleburg and on the report from the Oyster Shack. So it's unclear why this officer on the night of her murder would have known her as Miss Grant from Minnesota. She was born in Minnesota, but she lived in Canada after that. She was known as Darlene Tenney, T-E-N-E-Y, in Calgary, Ontario, Canada, and she had a child, a daughter with that last name. From all appearances, it seems that she had given this officer who visited the store a different name for whatever reason. Maybe she didn't want him associating her with her incarcerated husband, who resided at one of the local prisons. It's hard to say. I do find it interesting that a local corrections officer would know the name of the clerk at all. Perhaps he went to that store frequently. I know that I worked personally in retail for quite a few years when I was younger, and I don't recall ever telling anyone my last name, certainly not a customer. So it's another interesting thing, just like with the firemen, that these corrections officers, or at least one of them, might have even known her by her full name, even though that wasn't even her real legal name by that time. One other thing from his statement that I want to point out to clarify something for you is the woman in the sack dress with bare feet who came in and asked about the bathroom. She is likely one of that party of four from Florida headed to Palatka for fishing. There weren't any other cars in the lot at that time, and the statement from the couple did mention that some of them had gone into the store for the bathroom. There was one other short note in Darlene's file that I found later in my research, which seems to be referring to Roger, a.k.a. Charlie. It notes a 74 pickup and says, Charlie's dad's, which I assume to mean the 74 pickup was his dad's car, and it also says three to four months worked at restaurant, and quote, Charlie worked there. That may refer to the Oyster Shack, which is the only indication in the entire report that suggests that police knew that both Darlene and Charlie worked at that restaurant. It doesn't even mention if they worked there at the same time, and I found no reports that discuss Darlene knowing Rob and Charlie. It also notes Charlie's waist and shoe size, likely information requested pertaining to the belt and the shoe print found at the scene. I believe that there's a definite possibility that the Florida Department of Law Enforcement has certain documents related to this case that I don't have because they are now assisting with this investigation. I tend to believe this because after I had been told by one of the sergeants at Columbia County that I could speak to some of the officers about this case, some of the original officers that had actually worked it, The sergeant I spoke to emailed me back and apologized profusely and said that it wouldn't be possible because the FDLE was working on it. I'd also asked for a copy of Darlene's answering machine tape and the 911 call that night, but I was told that FDLE had both and it wouldn't be possible. So I suspect that they have gathered the statements pertaining to the suspects that they've not yet ruled out, and they are working on those. I know who they have ruled out with DNA testing, and Rob and Charlie are not on that list. When I got the file, there were eight names in the suspect's folder. Joe and T. That's two. They have been ruled out, according to Columbia County Sheriff's Department. Raymond Moscone, the guy they were trying to associate with a bunch of convenience store robberies. All to no avail. That's three. Casey, the kid who was into karate and ninjas and weapons, who wore dark clothes and long hair, and who the Unsolved Mysteries viewer called in the tip about, who turned out to be a 15-year-old pudgy kid with possible learning disabilities, that's four. Kenneth and William, the guy who'd been in jail at the time, and his pal, whose lady friend had stolen his credit cards, and was trying to leverage information about them being Darlene's killer in an effort to get herself out of a jam. That's five and six. And finally, Rob and Charlie, the two guys who were arrested in Darlene's store parking lot, nine days before she was murdered, driving a vehicle that matches the description of the last vehicle seen pulling into that same lot two to three minutes before the store alarm went off that night. That's seven and eight. Now, I don't know about you guys, but that last duo on this list has a tune from Sesame Street that I heard as a kid written all over it. One of these things is not like, like the others. others. One, one of these, these things, things just doesn't belong. doesn't belong. Can you tell, you tell which thing is, is not like the others? But by the time, time I finish my song. song. Police spent almost all of their time as far as DNA testing on Joe and T. From the belt to the cigarettes to the blood found at the scene, which you will recall they eventually learned contained samples from two contributors, one being Darlene the other being an unknown male. That one is curious to me. I sure hope that's the perp's DNA and not contamination from the collection process. That could muddy the water six ways from Sunday if there's any possibility, even with gloves, that the person who collected those samples had inadvertently included his own. They could, however, easily get that investigator's sample and test the male contributor against his to rule it out. My concern, for example, is... Let's say you've got a box of surgical gloves in your trunk, and a lot of police officers do. You grab a couple and you pull them on. Where did you touch those gloves? Did you touch those gloves at the fingers or any place that would then touch the gauze pads that would sop up that distilled water and blood slurry that you then made to collect the sample? We like to assume that when police say they have a sample, that means something. But sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes the way things are collected only further confuses the investigator's perception of a crime scene when they're looking at the results. Now, I have a plethora of lab reports done by the FDLE all the way up to 2018. I didn't go through all of these until I was well into already researching the case and preparing the podcast because scientific reports are often kind of dense and it takes a little while and concentration to go through them. They tested Joe and T's DNA against the belt, that bloody gauze, cigarette butts, hair samples, you name it. They were excluded from everything. And guess who I eventually learned was also excluded? Jesse James Brannan and David Tomlinson. I didn't even pick up on that the first, like, five times I read through the reports because I read them after I did my interview with the witness who had mentioned Jesse James to me. So imagine my surprise when I went through the DNA results one final time before completing this episode, and there they were, the names that I had devoted an entire episode to just in case they could be related to Darlene's case because someone had name-dropped them to me in an interview. I have to tell you it felt good knowing that I was on the right track, the same track as the police investigation, at least in that area. It confirmed to me that I was doing a thorough job researching this case. So yeah, the guys who went to jail for the murder of Harold Biddix, the bar owner, are not related to Darlene's murder. They've been excluded. All these guys have been excluded. And they're not just excluded from one source. They've got DNA profiles from the belt, cigarette butt, and the concrete blood scrapings, just to name a few. They are excluded from them all. I wish I could say the same for Robin Charlie. I don't have any documentation to show that they have even been tested. Before I end this season, I want to bring you back to the crime scene. Back to the Suwanee Swifty in Lake City. Back to around 12.53 a.m. on September 18, 1989, when the four people in the light blue Bronco with the Georgia tags were pulling out of the lot, and the raggedy-looking dark red 1976 or 77 Pontiac Grand Prix was pulling into that lot. Seven minutes before 1 a.m., is when they believed they were rolling out of that parking lot. That gives the occupant or occupants of the raggedy-looking Grand Prix two or three minutes to park, get inside, look around for a second, and feign a purchase that amounted to 38 cents before that drawer popped open and the alarm was engaged. That's not a lot of time, two or three minutes. And it's certainly not likely that anyone else is involved, because if there was another car and another patron or patrons, the occupant or occupants of the Raggedy Grand Prix would have had to get in and out and away from that area fast enough that they never saw who came next. And then you'd have to presume that occurred and they never contacted anyone and said, hey, we were at that store that night. We were driving our Raggedy Grand Prix and we saw this. That didn't happen. And that's probably because there wasn't anyone else. Whoever drove that Raggedy Grand Prix very likely did something to Darlene Messer. What we don't know for sure is if there are one or more of them. What weapon or weapons did they have? How did they get her out of there if they didn't have a gun? Did they have a gun? If they did, why didn't they just shoot her there? If robbery was really the motive. Look at that store. Those items behind the counter? They look pushed over, not pulled off that counter. And those untouched rolling paper boxes not being trampled? They tell a story. Look at how nothing else on that entire counter around the cashier bay isn't knocked off only the area right around the register what the hell were they doing with that belt and who the hell steals lighters and drops most of the money that they just stole on the ground on the way out what do you think happened really after listening to this podcast what do you think happened do you guys ever listen to these podcasts and wonder how you can help because you can you know In Darlene Messer's case I've now given you enough information that if you lived in Middleburg then or in Lake City around the Suwannee Swifty store you might just have some information and you didn't know it this whole time think back to September of 1989 try to remember the little things Was anyone you know injured in any way around the time of Darlene's abduction injuries on their hands maybe scratches on their face or arms Darlene may have fought back against her attacker or attackers Do you remember seeing someone with an unexplained injury at the time and thinking that it was strange? What about someone who had a bunch of lighters or rolling papers or items that they could have grabbed from a convenience store? Maybe it didn't seem so odd at the time, but now, thinking back about it, could it be related to this crime? Did anyone that you know brag about committing a convenience store robbery or abduction? Anyone you know have damage to their car or unexplained stains that could have been blood? After the murder? Did you see anyone cleaning out or even get rid of a vehicle matching the description of the Raggedy Grand Prix around that time? Maybe they stopped using that car. Maybe they sold it. Was anyone you know acting strangely or doing something out of their schedule after the murder? Maybe someone that didn't show up for work the next day or came home in the wee hours of the night with no appropriate explanation or someone who left town. And what about clothes? Bloody clothes. Someone who might have gotten rid of something. Maybe someone you saw with clothing that had unexplained blood on it. And finally, specific to this case, I'm not sure how relevant it is now or if they've even accounted for it, but two of the Columbia County Sheriff's documents that I found noted that Darlene had been wearing a silver chain with a St. Christopher medallion on it. Does someone you know have something like that? And now that you think about it, How and when they got it doesn't seem kosher. Maybe you know someone that was associated with this case and you've seen that necklace or medallion. That's something that you might want to tell police. Just think about what you've learned in this podcast and then ask yourself if you or someone you know might have information that could help solve Darlene Messer's murder. Every single one of us depends on people that we don't know to do the right thing sometimes. When we lose our wallet. When our kid needs help with something we're not there. When we run out of gas or our car breaks down on the side of the road. Those are little things, and if you're like me, you're always grateful for them when they happen to you. This here, this is a big thing. And if you have it within your power to make this right, or even shed some light on something you might think is insignificant, but you're not sure, do it. Contact the Columbia County Sheriff's Department or the FDLE and tell them you may have information about the murder of Darlene Messer. Or you can message me on Facebook and I will get you in touch with who you need to speak with. You know, doing this podcast, to me anyway, it's kind of like an elaborate eulogy. Not the kind where you're at a funeral and you're standing in front of everyone talking about how someone was liked and they'll be missed against a backdrop of human sounds ranging from sniffles to sobs. This is a different kind of eulogy, the kind where a lot of time has passed and the job at hand isn't to say how wonderful someone was and how they'll be missed. For most family and friends of the victims of violent crimes, that goes without saying. Of course they're missed. People who love them miss them. My job isn't to point that out. My job is to ask those unanswered questions, My job is to say, Hey, listen here. This is how she lived. This is how she rubbed up against the world and moved it with her very existence. This is where she pushed a bruise or she tossed a match or spiked a ball, or she grabbed at something or she chased her dream. And here is how the world folded in on her. Here's that moment when a blunt object met her soft flesh. And what must she have been thinking right then? Does your breath catch thinking of her last 60 seconds? Can you picture it in slow motion, watching for clues? Those moments between every blink, where the answers that you and I seek are in what she saw tucked into the folds of skin behind her eternally closed eyes. You can judge Darlene Messer, if you will, as you listen, but remember this. All of the there but for the grace of God go eyes in her story, they're speaking to yours too. My eulogies gather up the pieces of a story so that together we can fashion an explanation for someone's end. I hear people say all the time that we're giving victims a voice, but that's not what we're doing. Not really. Their voices have been smothered, and we certainly cannot presume to speak for them. We're acknowledging their life, the fact that they drew breath for a certain amount of years, and then suddenly, they didn't. They breathed no more. And that jarring absence requires acknowledgement, because, in the end, that absence, and most importantly, our response to it, it says everything about who we are, all of us, together. Together. There is no perfect life. Did you hear what I just said? There is no perfect life. We're all just a mess, trying to make it through another day without making things even messier for everybody around us. And that's often on our best days. As always, thank you so much for your kind words and reviews. I always appreciate the people that take the time to go and put in a review because I know it's not something that we all even have time for. Don't forget to stop by the Down and Away Twitter or Facebook pages for updates and posts related to each season. Until then, you'll hear me next season. Bye-bye.
1: Some speed. It will sing you to sleep, and it will hit you awake in a perfect life.